Welcome to the Sales Lead Dog Podcast, hosted by CRM technology and sales process expert, Christopher Smith, talking with sales leaders that have separated themselves from the rest of the pack. Listen to find out how the best of the best achieve success with their team and CRM technology. And remember, unless you are the lead dog, the view never changes. Welcome to Sales Lead Dog. In this episode, I have joining me Bob Poznanovich. Bob, welcome to Sales Lead Dog. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. Bob, tell me a little about your current role in the organization you're working with today. So today I'm in charge of growth, which um, in our organization has a couple different components to it. One is um, a sales organization that we call Outreach. Yep. I'm in healthcare. so. Uh, one of my teams isn't selling products and services as much as we're selling relationships um, and trust. So that's one team. And the other team that I manage is, is a tr traditional sales organization that is selling products and services um, that we publish and we create uh, in the publishing division. Um, then I have um, what I would call the inside sales team, but uh, often referred to as our front end in the healthcare space, which is the team of people who take the calls from patients and families who want help. Uh, I think it's very much a sales job, maybe maybe even more difficult sales job. And then I've got, um, I connect the dots between uh, product development and marketing. And I own, as far as area of responsibility, what we're calling OKRs, Organizational Key Results for uh, admissions. So I'm kind of the, the senior exec that owns the roll-up, either my direct reports or others that impact our yep. ability to serve our mission, which is to help more people. Uh, yep. And typically that's in the area of serving more people from clinical or from a product perspective. Yep. So Bob's current title is Chief Business Growth Officer at Hazleton Betty Ford Foundation. So I think everybody knows who that is. Um, prior to that, you were Vice President of Marketing and Business Development. Tell me a little bit about your evolution or the, you know, how you progressed from the VP role into this role as uh, chief business growth officer. Yeah, so um, I think all organizations and particularly those in healthcare, um, where we've got a fixed number of beds, I, I only have, I'm not making any new beds, um, has a challenge as you look at inflation rising, look at the, uh, you know, um, the cost of doing business in general, um, that we're going to need when you look at like, yes, on salaries alone, you know, three or 4% a year growth just to cover the reoccurring costs that are predictable, let alone the impact on inflation or the costs. So we need, you know, we needed to build a growth strategy that looked for three things. And I think this is the simplicity of, of kind of a growth strategy. It's sell more, sell two more and sell four more, right? Wow. So in that capacity, I think what we missed as an organization was the funnel of leadership that would look at that and try to make that happen from organic growth. Um, and that's kind of how it emerged is as we look to emerging markets, changing political environment from uh, clinical requirements and uh, regulation, to customer demand as it's you know evolving with COVID is changing a lot um, that we need to evolve our product line and, and and as the population shows up differently sicker um, with new drugs and with new challenges 
that there's opportunities to take an entrepreneur approach, I think. If you look at it that way, to being innovative in the area of growth of selling to more, right? which yeah. is looking at products and services that we don't have. So part of this vision was that we've got to create X number of millions of dollars in growth over the next year for products and services that don't exist while we're also selling and maximizing the capacity of what we currently have, and then looking for ways to get more value so we could sell for more. That's fascinating. There's a lot for us to talk about today. Before we get to that, how, what are, you know, thinking back over your career, which, you know, check out Bob's uh, LinkedIn profile. It's pretty interesting to see his progression, his path to where he got to now. But looking back over your career, what are the three things that have driven your success? So I would say what, what drove me overall was being money motivated. Um, personal story is I didn't grow up with a lot of money. So the, 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 the hope of money equal power, prestige, happiness. Right? I was going to be a lawyer. I couldn't quite get into law school at the time from financially. And, um, and I had some buddies who I was really impressed with. They just some guys that I was not really mentors, but guys that I looked up to maybe a year or so older than me who went into sales. And they were all really success, what I would think, you know, strong, strong people uh, that could have gone a lot of different ways. You know, and that initial connotation of being in sales kind of didn't sit me right. But when I looked at these men doing that role and who they were and what they were doing, it changed my perspective. Um, so I got into sales with the short-term hope of making enough money to go to law school. Well, then I ended up being really successful really fast in sales. So I was making the money. And then I realized it wasn't a bad path to leading people. So I guess number one was ambition. You know, being motivated for money, which wasn't bad as a sales guy. The second contributing factor in my success, and maybe maybe the first one, was um, my dedication to being really, really, really good at sales. There's the art and the science, and I've done a lot of work not only perfecting the sales perspective, but also the buying perspective. I bet you, with all the people you've had on the show. Not many people talked about selling as a buyer as opposed to selling as a salesman. No. There is, there is a psychological buying process that people go through when they're making a decision. I think we're too often in sales thinking about, you know, the Miller-Hyman or whatever the 10 steps are that we're doing. And we often don't look at what the customer is going through through their buying cycle, psychological. Yep. So it's much easier for me to sell somebody when I can understand where they're at using the psychology, at least the history of how this was studied, Right to help me understand people, and I think that leads to the third component. Was I always when I always say this? It sounds egotistical, but um, I think that emotional intelligence is a big factor, and I think knowing how to fit in, knowing how to communicate with people, you know, understanding the difference between the golden rule and the platinum rule, instead of treating people like I want to be treated, treat people like they want to be treated. Right. You know, sometimes that's manipulative. You know, and, and I recognize that. But I think people would say that I've got have demonstrated really strong you know, emotional intelligence that I could understand people, I could feel people, I can connect with people. Yep. And the sales world, if you could do that, then it helps you win the sales. And if there was a fourth one that you didn't ask for, it, it is I've had a passion about the products and the industries I was in. I sell things that I like. Maybe they didn't matter to everybody, but I believed in. And it became better for me when I got really behind a product or an industry that I like to be able to, to, to be what I would say is that consultative sales rep, 
which was not only could provide solutions that you know you had or problems you know you had, but could I be good enough to, to know your business, your industry, and my product line right. to create problems and solutions that you didn't even know you had? Yep. And that market expertise or product expertise helped me do that. That's awesome. So you answered one of my questions is, you know, how'd you get into sales? But what I really want to know is so many people struggle when they get into sales because it's people going to all just going to start selling, not realizing how hard it is. Yeah. You had early success. What was behind that early success? I had a good mentor. Now I'm going to age myself by saying when I went to work for the, uh, what was the office products business back in the late seventies. That was a great place for people to learn how to sell. I mean, it was up and down the busy streets of downtown Chicago, selling copiers and word processing equipment. You know, we carried them on big hospital carts, trying to give demos up and down the street. You learn how to prospect, you learn how to demo, you learn how to propose, you learn how to close. And every week, you know, that the company that I worked for had every Wednesday night of sales training, you know, it was, you know, again, prospecting, closing, demoing, proposing. And that was it. Every week you, you did it. And you got really good at presenting products. You got really good at, you know, prospecting. And of course you had, a, you couldn't survive without closing. And I think in the simplicity of what we learned in those days, and it's a model I really try to follow in the simplicity, salespeople only do three things. They prospect that they close, they take care of their current customers. And that's kind of how I built this core set of the kind of behaviors or, or kind of my, you know, my own sales DNA, which is I'm looking at all three things. Am I, am I prospecting? Am I not closing because I don't have enough prospect? It goes back to prospecting. And if I'm not getting good to take care of my customers, I'm not going to get repeat business and referrals. And that's kind of what I hold my sales teams today to is uh, to make sure they know that. And again, I think mentor was important. I had a really good mentor who was great at the base. I had a company who was really forced us to be really good at the basics. Um, and then I had a, a mentor, my first sales manager, who was great at sales, sales training, motivating, recognizing, you know, people like myself who had a will they put the work in and gave us the opportunities. Right, right. Did he lead from the front or did he lead from the back? He was very, very much in the front. You know, we were very much, you know, today's will be called micromanaged, right. but we were very micromanaged. If you know the Miller Hyman one, I mean, uh, yeah. the, one minute manager model where you're get D1 to get told what to do as opposed to getting support. You know, we we got told what to do for a lot. Now, over time, some people earn more, you know, but we were really micromanaged. I mean, and there was some good disciplines. I mean, one of the organizations we worked with for him, we had pay phones in the sales bullpen. You know, they didn't want you sitting around making, sitting in the office on phone calls. So you want to make phone calls, get up, use the pay phone and hit the street. I mean, that kind of a discipline. I mean, right. today's world, that probably doesn't fly, but in those days, yeah. You know, it's the right tone, right? And again, in 1980, you know, I walked in a sales organization, 78, you know, and one of the people who was next to me was, uh, as I was new, my first job out of college, was selling copiers. And she was making $100,000 a year in commission in 78. Yeah, that's big money. Yes, yeah, so that was big money. I mean, some people still talk about, and I make $100,000 a year, but you know, think about that's what they were making back in those days selling copiers. So, you know, the environment was right. Some of the role models were right. Some of the mentors were right. And of course, I put the right work into it. So what took you into the path of becoming a leader in sales? Yeah. So what I've, I guess I, I, I got, 
being a boss and moving up the ladder became more attractive to me than just being in sales. I was also looking, you know, in this big bullpen of guys that were 65 years old who were pushing copiers. Right. And I didn't want to be that guy either. Right. So I knew there was a couple of paths up the corporate ladder, even though I didn't know what the corporate ladder was. One was through engineering. The other one was through, you know, sales and marketing. And I thought, why not take the shot? Yeah. Yep. Why do you think, what was it about you that stood out where they tapped you on the shoulder and said, Bob, we want you to take this, this next step. You know, what were you, what were you demonstrating or what were you doing to stand out from the, the rest of the people? I mean, in sales, there's no secret. I mean, it, it was the numbers. Okay. You know, I killed it. You know, I, uh, you know, I was always number one salesman. I was just looking at it. We cleaned my office and there's a bunch of awards I had. You know, I was a salesman of the month, like for three or four years in a row. Every year when we had whatever award it was, you know, salesman of the year, sales manager of the year, regional manager of the year, I was always number one. And, you know, in a lot of years, you know, my goal was not only that we were the number one region, but every one of my people made quota. And there were years that, you know, I had a sales team sometimes over a couple hundred people that yeah. made quotas. And I remember, you know, but, you know, so I think it was the success record. I think it was also the fact that I was able to bring forward really good voice of the customer. And since I'm in Minnesota, I'll use a Minnesota analogy. You know, we kind of had the ability, or I had the ability to, to be in front of people and listen good enough that I was able to kind of understand where the puck was going to be, right. not where it was at. That gave product development, product management, some opportunities. And you know, we got involved in some creative um, go-to-market strategies because we could anticipate where things you were probably going to go. Yep. So thinking about that, that topic in today's market, how do you drive growth, especially in your current role now, where to me, it's really interesting as you were talking about your current organization, where, you know, even though you're working in healthcare, um, which, you know, a lot of people listening might think, well, how's that apply to me in my world? It, to me, I was thinking it's, you're trying to sell every maximize what you have your current capacity you got to maximize that um but then you also have to drive growth because you can't just rely on that if you maximize what you have today as your costs are going up that's at some point you're going to hit a wall right so you have to find other revenue opportunities new markets new product services that you can sell to your customer base to it's the same as every other business so tell me about that from you know, this growth mindset to where you're making sure you're taking care of your customers and what you have today and maximizing that, but also providing opportunities to grow. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot to talk about. Yeah. And I think if you're out there every day, right, and you're doing your job as far as being in front of people. And number one, you know your business, right? And you know your industry. You know, I always try to set it up. You know, and I try to teach my teams this, that if you walk into a customer's office, right, and, and it's packed with your competitors, he was going to meet with everybody today. And he comes out and he goes, Bob, I, he said to the team, I could only meet with one of you today. You know, Bob, come see me, right? I'd want that guy to, to recognize that I stood out because I bring value to the conversation, right? That I could add value. So if you're the person who could add value and you put yourself in the position that you could listen Right, that you're that you're really listening to what's said, what's not being said, and that as you go on these sales calls, you can connect dots that you're starting to identify, right? And when you go to customer one, he goes, I got this problem. Go to customer two, I say, I got this problem. 
I can say to customer two, what about customer one's example, right? Like, right. You know, do you have that problem too, right? Now when I go see a third guy, I got three problems to tee up, right? His right. plus the previous two. And I can start this dialogue where I get smarter in every sales call. I get to see the, the patterns and opportunities exist. And then the question is, what do you do with it, right? And can I influence either the change in how I go to market? Do I change what I feature as, as my benefits and what products I highlight? Do I look for certain problems on their end? Or do I influence product development or product enhancement or operations to tweak the things to better meet the needs of the market? So that was kind of how I approached it in a lot of different fronts. You know, when I started in the technology business, I started in 70, 80, when we got in the PC business, you know, I was working directly with Microsoft, you know, to, to develop things like, you know, the standard with P, how PCs worked in a multimedia environment. It was, you know, feedback from my customers who looked at the beginning of Apple where everything was installed and it came with the mouse and all the software was installed compared to Windows where you got big boxes of software and you had to install them yourself. Yeah. So that's how my company was, you know, Zenith at the time, was Zenith, you know, Zenith was a big company and their division was a billion dollar division called Zenith Data Systems. That's how we became the first PC manufacturer to pre-install Windows on a computer and bundle it with a mouse so I could take that customer feedback that says, I really want the Windows environment, but I love the simplicity and the ease of the Apple environment. So that's how I think the field and the field feedback could change how you package or present material. We didn't create new computers. We packaged the computers differently in ways that the consumers was meeting some of the consumer needs that could help me overcome some of the objections that my competition had. Right, right. How do you create alignment within the organization towards growth? Because change is hard for everybody. It doesn't matter really what type of change, but how do you manage that in your role? Yeah. I think the challenge with growth often, it, it comes down to corporate culture to in the change mentality of an organization, right? I mean, how risk bearing the organization is, um, what we have in the way of human resources and capital to make it happen. So for, for, for me, a little bit was to create the need for growth, to, to, you know, to kind of have this conversation that we've got to um, grow, right? And that some of the urgency around growth. Um, it, it was to get alignment and some buy-in from some other leaders, right? That would see the same thing. Yep. And then it was look to look for other people in the organization in that growth mindset. We were willing to take a risk, it was okay failing, right? It was okay putting in the extra work to get there, to get some wins, to get us credibility. Right. Get, right? And I've got examples of how, you know, in this space, like I did back in the PC days, was able to see what the customers wanted, what, what the insurance companies were willing to pay for in the future, what patients needed you know, in, in their own recovery, and looked at ways that I could productize that in a way that the customers would want it, the payers would pay for it, and our clinical staff believed in it. And we created you know, some product marketing there, you know, um, product development that was new to us that today is worth $30, $40 million in revenue. Um, another example was uh, in 2018, now 2018 is significant because um, COVID didn't happen until 2020. Right. So in 2018, based upon the same scenario we talked about, which was needing growth, looking at the market, using logic, know where technology was going, knowing the realities of, 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 of the funnel of patients and what, what's restricting the funnel from growing. You know, I saw an opportunity in 2018 to say that virtual care could be a thing. Right now, we had regulatory challenges. We had um, you know, investment risks. We had um, 
payers who weren't willing to pay for it. And so the path to through regulatory, the path through getting paid for the idea, you know, was an obstacle. We had to create the clinical model. But in 2018, at the end of 2018, the beginning all of 2019, we work with regulators, we work with payers, we got positioned to be unique in the marketplace. And I was getting ready to launch on March of 2020. Oh my gosh. March March 23rd, actually, of 2020. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And we were getting ready to launch our entire product line, which had completely first in the market. And a week before they you know, they called the uh, you know, the epidemic. And everybody got access to those regulations and everybody got access to their payers. So I kind of felt on that day like the Pony Express did when they connected both ends of the telegraph, right? Yeah. I had the best drivers and the fastest horses. Now I'm out of business. Yeah. It wasn't quite that bad. But you know. It would have been interesting to see where we would have been if we would have been, you know, and the good news was because of our tests and our pilot, et cetera, I was able to transition 1,500 patients overnight, over five days from, from facility-based care to virtual care. We shut down our buildings. Right. Um, but some of the competitive advantage I had disappeared. But I think that was a good example of being ahead of the curve from a product development perspective, um, but just not working out because of some competitive, the competitive marketplace changed. But today, uh, you know, even though we kind of, the industry kind of caught up, we lost some of our competitive nature, 47% of our patients are accessed to care that way. Right, right. So, right. you know, it didn't explode as big as it could have, right. and uniquely as it could have, but it still became significant to our growth. And I think that's a combination, that's the reality of, of, of the sales team being a voice of what's going on closest to the customer. Right. And, 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 and lots of customers, right? Lots of different types of customers to paint that picture. Yep. Okay. I've talked with many CEOs where I'll ask them, you know, tell me your strategic goals for the year. And almost always, number one is we want to grow revenue. We want to, and then I ask the question, how, what's your plan to actually grow revenue? More often than not, I, I don't really get an answer, not, or at least I've, the answer they give me isn't really real. It's like, well, I set the goal, you know, we're going to grow 30%. As someone in your role, if someone came to you, you know, if your CEO came to you and said, hey, Bob, I want to grow 20% revenue next year or the next two years, whatever that is, without really anything to back that up, how do you manage that, those expectations? Or how do you, you know, in your role, how do you suggest people manage something like that? Yeah, I think when you have a big problem like that, I try to reduce it to my, to the smallest, um, like the smaller buckets. Right. Like right. I said, simplest and it would even be smaller than this, but yeah, I use the term SWAT. Like, what can I SWAT? SWAT is sell what's available today, right? What do I got that I could sell more of, right? Right, right. I love that. Yeah, and, and what is my capacity, right? right. Um, and what are my underserved markets? And you know, that real basic of what do I got that's that's on the shelf that I need to sell more of. Another thing is what do I maybe have on the shelves that I'm not that I'm not selling that I could sell to new types of customers, right? So new market expansion. Right. And then on top of that is what we could do from a new product development perspective. And then that third bucket is not only how can I sell more, but is there opportunities to bundle to change some of the ways that we're presenting products? You know, um, you know for example, we, in our, one of our publishing decisions, we used to sell sell your product. We moved to a licensing model, right? Mm -hmm. So now we've got reoccurring revenue. We're not starting from zero every 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 year, right. so some of it was changing the models. I uh, went to you know to, to uh, so I think you know that's that's kind of one is you know saying what well, what can I do, right? I mean what what can we do and what's realistic? And we've had these conversations over the years. It's, you know it's like 
I want this kind of growth, right? Well, yeah, we all would, right? But what's the plan to get there? And, and what is realistic? Because I don't think anybody wants to overpromise and underproduce. Right. But we don't want to set the bar so low that we don't strive to, to do more too, right? Right. I think it's that balance about, okay, here's a goal. Can we get there? If not, you know, what can we get to? And, um, you know, I think that that will help, that will help us, like, like, you know, kind of set realistic goals and get alliance, uh, get aligned within the organization how to get there. Right. Right. And then of course, you know, trickles down, you got the right people in the right place doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with people that are maybe stuck in the mud or just really aren't interested in growth? You know, that they, for whatever reason, they're just not getting on board. How do you manage those people? Um, if it's my team, it's one answer. <laughs> <laughs> I love that's my answer too. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you pat them high and sometimes you pat them low. Um, and I, I think it becomes a little bit of a challenge when it's yeah. not your team. Right. And I think you know, part of that is to sell the dream. Right. And I, you've got to recognize that no matter if you're selling internally or externally, you know, people are motivated by their motives, not by mine. Right. And I think it's a little bit of that exercise to find out what their goals are and how my growth strategies will help them. You know, the good news is I've got, you know, an opportunity because of what we do, work we do, the important work we do is that we're saving lives. Right. So everybody that works here is here because of mission, right? Anybody in sales can make more selling something else that didn't matter. And the front end works hard and the healthcare is difficult, but we're here for the ultimate reason, which is the customer. And I think sometimes reminding them that this is about the customer, not about us. This is about the patient, right? Or the yep. family. It, it, it helps us, you know, address this on a different level. Yep. What's the hardest thing about your current job? So I, I think in sales, in general, people would say, who's your number one competitor in sales? And people would say, who's your biggest competitor? I think in any sales job, no matter what you're selling, your biggest compel your biggest competitor is always willingness to change. Mm -hmm. Because if it was Joe Blow, you could fix the product up to go against Joe Blow, right? If it's the lowest price guy, there's always going to be the lowest price guy. So I doubt that that's always the answer, right? But when I would sell, for example, an IBM compatible computer, and I go knock on an IT door, right? And I say, I give you a computer that's faster, cheaper, great brand, which is Zenith. It's even more compatible to your own equipment is to your own equipment. How many do you want? And they'd say, Bob, I don't want any. Right? And I would say, how could that be? You got the budget, you got the need, you got, you know, you said, I'm not buying anything but IBM. Right. I don't have the, I don't have any, no willingness to change. Right. And part of that because it's worked and it's not that incrementally. So I would always tell my salespeople, incremental to you as a sales guy, right, as a new customer. Incremental to you isn't always incremental to your customer, right? It's change. It's hard to change, right? It's 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 not safe. Nobody ever got fired from buying IBM back in the in those That's days, right. right? Yeah. So getting back to to my current job and my biggest problem, I'm dealing with the disease with this mental health and substance use disorders, where the underlying problem of the disease is denial that I'm sick and often the reluctance to get help. So willingness to change is my biggest challenge is people call us, but the conversion is really low compared to their need and the urgency because on some level, most people don't really want to quit or change. Right. And that's hard to do. And, and when I talk about the front end staff that works for me, I think about the hardest sales job in the world 
and the hardest buy in the world too. So together, and, and again, the word sales is used kind of in a clinical guideline. But we're asking our patients and our families, most likely in crisis, because they didn't wake up today and say the world is great. I need a little health help, right? Or uh, the world is great. My my, my you know my cocaine addiction is the cops are thrilled. My employer is thrilled, right? It, it, you know, it happened because something went wrong. And they find us, however they find us, right? Some may know the brand. Some may find us on Google. Don't know. And they call us and say, "I got a problem." Often they're not convinced they really have a problem. Uh, but even when they are, we're asking them to make a decision that's a healthcare decision. That is probably a decision they've never made before in their life. They probably don't know anybody who's had the similar, made a similar decision they could go to for Asheville. If they did, they're not talking about it. Yeah. And then we're asking them to make this decision with the same sick mind that got them into the problem, somehow being healthy enough to get them out of the problem. Right. We're asking them to make this decision sight unseen over the phone on blind faith in the middle of crisis. So more people say no, that they don't, not now, than say, yes, I need help. And it's not that they don't all need help. We can figure out what's the right place. It's just that that mind is in a position where they don't want to get better. Right. And that's the part that challenges our staff emotionally when you hear really sad stories. So, you know, it's it's different than selling a computer up and down the street that nobody really cares about. Like one more computer in the world is not going to make a difference. But when you're dealing with a family who's making bad decisions, who's putting family members at risk, yep. it becomes much more personal, becomes much more important, and it becomes much more frustrating. And, you know, and my team that does that job doesn't want to be called sales. But I don't look at sales as a bad connotation. Right. I mean, if I don't sell them, right, which mean, really means convince them, They've got a problem that we've got the right product and we're the right place. Yep. Somebody else might, or worst case, they do nothing. Yep. And there is some things that we could do better, or that things that we could do from a pure science perspective to engage them differently. You know, we have different outcomes by different by people, so not everybody has the same results. So clearly, there, there's a human factor on how well I connect with you versus somebody else might connect with you. Right. Um, so that's kind of the science and the art that I'm trying to to overcome is, is how do we engage with people uh, in ways that will allow them to get help more, whether it's with us or somebody else, right? If we're not right, who can I get them to that can help them? Yeah. Um, and I think we have to look at things like uh, how we're training the people, you know, our salespeople, I mean, our, our, our care navigators, um, you know, what tools do we give them? You know, what are we doing about the science of, you know, the resistance to change for you know, individuals. Um, I think we're looking at technology and new product development that says, if you're not willing to do this, what would you be willing to do? And I think there's some feedback that we need to, okay, where that puck is gonna be, yep. use that feedback in that all these hundreds of thousands of calls to say, they're not gonna be willing to do this, but they might be willing to do that. Yep. And that makes good business and good margin. I mean, it's good mission and margin. And yep. right? if I could help you get help, yep. that's a start. And if I can make a few bucks in the process, that's not bad either because it helps me continue to be exist so I can help more people. Yep. Right. There's no cash, no margin, there's no mission. Yep. So I think that's the biggest challenge. I just hang up sometimes and just say, God, how is that okay? Yeah. Like, how is it okay for this family to walk away, right, in this situation? Wow. And like I said, it's frustrating when you lose a deal. Yeah. There's somebody who needs medical help, right? 
if you lose a deal, sell the computer, so what? Yeah. I mean, it helps on a big scope. Society isn't impacted, right? Right. Stakes are very real in your world. Very real. You know, yeah. it's, uh, you know, my world, one of the things when I'm talking to people, I'm trying to figure out, is there an external pressure, something that's forcing them to change? Because my experience is, unless that exists, they're not going to change. They're going to yeah. stay right where they're at. And so I'm always trying to figure that out. And so as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking like, yeah, your, your team is doing the same thing, but it's so much more important and so much more impactful, you know, but it's, it just gets down to the, 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 like you were saying earlier, the, 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 the science behind it and what that buyer is going through. You have to understand that and, and live in their shoes, you know, and in their mind to be able to influence that decision. Yeah. And your point about finding that pain point, right? It's really applies yeah. to, you know, the substance use of mental health. But I think in any sales environment, it's, it's, what is the need, right? What's the motivator to get over that incremental, right? Change is hard, but what's the upside, right? Right. And I try to tell my teams, you know, the need isn't treatment, right? We often think of the need as the product, right? That right. isn't the need, right? The need right. Is, to, is to not die. Yeah. The need is to save their family. Yeah. The solution is, is treatment. And the place is Hazelwood. But the need isn't you need treatment. Yeah, you might need treatment as a solution, but you, what you really need to do is to stop losing things in your addiction. You got to start getting things back. Right. right? You did not die. Yeah. Right? yeah. Make sure that your kid doesn't die in the bed next, you know, downstairs because right. you know, you're afraid to take action. Right. I mean, that's what people are really afraid of. In, in my space, you know, which is a real challenge too, is you know, getting off topic about sales, but knowing what the customer is going through is navigating care. Yeah. It's really hard. So, you know, again, how about the whole buying process of you know, not knowing how to buy this, never buying it, don't know anybody who's bought. How do you make the right decision, end up at the right place to get you the care you need from somebody who's legitimate? Yep. yep. And that adds, um, you know, a whole other dimension to the complexity of what we do. And that, that act of listening is so important yeah. by the team to find that leverage point. Like, where is that opening where I can have change conversation? Where can I use a clinical process, an evidence-based clinical process, not sales training, but clinical right. process, which is motivational interviewing? How do yep. I try to talk to this person in the conversation that continues to give them that motivation. Right. Holy cow. Wow. Bob, how are you guys as an organization leveraging technology to support your growth plans? Yeah. Is that something that's working well for you guys? Do you struggle with that? We struggle. Um, we a couple of reasons we struggle. Number one is um, as a nonprofit, yeah. you know, you've got limited capital. Um, so making innovation using technology and innovation technology, I can't go out and you know, float some new stock or bring in some new investors or add AI to something I'm doing and you know get you know hundred times the valuation right of of something. So number one is. Um, just availability of capital and the fight for capital, right? Between buildings and patient care and investment. I think others is part of it was, you know, some of the vision on where we're going to get. And our tech stack needed to be improved. So, you know, little by little, we make new, new tech stack. Um, we made a major investment that took a lot of capital and time to put a new electronic health record, which is important to serve our patients and yeah. our staff. Uh, we added a CRM, which had to connect to that 
to create a front end tool for the people, help people get in the door. And the people who, uh, you know, like, like my sales teams who are supporting those relationships. We're not, we're not yet where we need to be, yeah. but I can tell you the path of where we want to go and where I see some things that are interesting. Um, so one of the technologies we did take advantage of, obviously, was video conferencing, as we're doing now, right? That's mainstream. I can provide care that way. Not really innovating anymore, but that becomes an important tool. You say, what's next? I think um, we need to look at delivering care differently and, and using portable devices like, you know, like my, my watch and my iPhone as a way of gathering data to, yeah. you know, collecting this passive data um, to be, help us better understand how to improve patient outcomes. And that becomes really important. If I could provide better outcomes, I could tell a better story, I could ask for more money. Yeah. Right, so how do we use technology? I, you know, I know there's emerging technology with AI through voice recognition that could provide feedback on how well a counselor is doing to establish that therapeutic alliance. I could use feedback on a voice activated call to say predictively if they're depressed or anxiety in three minutes on the phone call. Yeah. So are there emerging technologies that could make my staff better, more effective? That maybe I could help drive patients down a pathway that's more fit for them. So an example I use is we have two types of callers. Those who are shopping, right, trying to problem solve, and those that are ready to buy. They've done their research, they're ready to check out, right? They're ready to check yep. in on you. How do I make those engagements so they get to the right people that can do that right job? Because connecting with somebody's helping you do an admission is much different than helping you solve a problem. Yep. How do I use AI and patient pathways in the patient journey digitally? You do that. So, you know, we need to invest in more AI. We need to invest in more um, personalization of healthcare. So the tools that allow us to personalize care, to personalize the initiative, to deliver care personalized, to use real feedback from wearables, I think is, is a, the next area. Uh, I think to, to get past some of this denial, can I give people some more tools available when they want them, where they want them, how they want them, that they can access their own use. You know, can we put tools in place that says, here's some real feedback that might help you recognize. Yep. So I, you know, I think that we, we're gonna have to rely on, health, on technology more to get there. I don't think healthcare or behavioral health in general has been very creative and innovative. I think you know, providers like hospitals and treatment providers like us aren't the great innovators. We rely on some partners do that. And there's just not a lot of innovation going on with behavioral health and substance use. But I think there's an opportunity to look at how we deliver care, not to the small percentage of people who come to Hazel and Betty Ford, but to those who are struggling, who aren't able to get there. And there's some health equity issues in that too. And then to anybody who got care, got help, however they got help, how do we continue to help them? And I'm looking at, again, mission and margin, right? Is, what is the product development areas there that can provide really good value? to help them continue. So I think I got to look, but I got to deliver that through technology. Yeah. It's got to scale. Right? Yep. It's got to be affordable too. Some of that technology, it's still very expensive right now. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, so we, you know, we, we got to research to make sure it works. We got to tweak it. Yep. You know, and then, like, I remember a few years ago, I, like, I, the sales team out there were like, I actually cold called Tim to cook at Apple and I got through it to Tim, but to his COO. Yeah. You know, and I made a pitch that, you know, you guys take on really important social social issues and what's greater than addiction in the opiate epidemic. Yeah. I got their attention, you know, my in my letter. 
yeah. for my follow-up. And they said, great, we're going to put you in charge of the health team. We're going to endorse this. I wasn't quite in a position to say what I wanted to do yet. Right. Like I was hoping Apple would tell me what to do. They were like, you tell me what to do. We'll help you build it. So we weren't quite there yet. But I think those kind of relationships is where I like to get with technologies. We're not a technology company. Yeah. We need to learn how to do partnerships, which is another area of growth that we don't have today, but that our brand and our credibility and our knowledge puts us up there to be a potential partner. So I think you'll see technology playing a bigger role in healthcare. And I hope that we get there through the partnerships, yeah. which is another sales and business development opportunity to tee those up. Bob, that's awesome. That's fascinating. I wish we could talk more. Um, if you know, we're at that time now, we got to wrap things down. If Bob, if people want to reach out, connect with you, they want to learn more about your mission or just learn more about you and, and maybe even be part of your team, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is a, is a real easy way. Um, and if you want to provide my work email, you can do that too, whatever works with you. But I'm very accessible on LinkedIn. I, I, I accept all the, all the, I respond to all the messages and I accept all the friendship requests. Yep. Uh, that'd be a place to start. And then if there was something that made sense, we could connect off of there. Awesome. And we'll share this information on in the show notes for this episode. Um, you can check that out at impellercrm.com forward slash sales lead dog. Um, you'll get not only this episode, but all our other episodes of sales lead dog. So be sure to check that out. Bob, thank you so much for coming on. This really, I, I seriously, you're one of those guests. I think I could keep talking for two more hours with you. Um, it's absolutely fascinating to listen to you and, and your, your journey. There's so much knowledge in your head that I would love to just peel away <laughs> and, and, and put into mine. Yeah, well, thank you. For, well, thank you for the opportunity. I think anytime that I could get you know, the message out there more about what we do, I think the importance of sales in the process too, that's great because again, I think that in some world, you know, my team's really important to what we do. Yeah. And, um, you know, whether you, what, no matter what you're doing, what you're selling, that a, a really important sales team. Yeah. That uh, really that, that's, that, that, that's that first face of the organization. Yeah. It's such an important role. So it thank really you. is. Yeah. So thanks again for coming on Sales Lead Dog and welcome to the Sales Lead Dog Pack. Thank you. Good luck to you and your mission. Too. Thank you. As we end this discussion on Sales Lead Dog, be sure to subscribe to catch all our episodes. On social media, follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Watch the videos on YouTube. And you can also find our episodes on our website at impellercrm.com forward slash Sales Lead Dog. Sales Lead Dog is supported by Impeller CRM, delivering objectively better CRM for business, guaranteed.